From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A death connected to vaping has been reported in Illinois. Meanwhile, Colorado is investigating cases of vaping-related illness. The latest from our health reporter, John Daly. Plus, the mayor of Carbondale is on a crusade to fight youth vaping. It is unequivocally addiction at its early phases. And that's really alarming to me. Later, a gun safety measure with widespread support, safe storage to prevent suicide. But there are other reasons too. Let's say the grandkids are coming to visit or you're going on an extended trip. Also coming up, a district attorney's job is to charge people with crimes. Now one DA is accused of a crime herself. And presidential candidates take an unprecedented step to court the Native American vote. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The first death linked to vaping has been reported in Illinois. That news came late last week after Colorado confirmed its first case of vaping-related illness. There are three more cases of sickness here under investigation. While Colorado has a high rate of teen vaping, which we have reported on, all the cases identified so far here are in adults. All are along the front range. CPR health reporter John Daly joins us with the latest. Hi, John. Hi, Ryan. What do health officials suspect is going on? Well, so this is how it played out. Earlier this month, patients, many of them young adults, were hospitalized with respiratory problems in the Midwest, so Wisconsin, Minnesota, Illinois. The symptoms included trouble breathing, chest pain, cough, fatigue, and fever. Their doctors started investigating, and then other cases of this mystery illness emerged around the country. That's how Colorado's cases popped on the radar screen. The state's chief medical officer, Dr. Tista Ghosh, says there was a common denominator. Usually when you come in with shortness of breath or cough, you think of an infectious agent, you know, pneumonia, some sort of virus, a bacteria. Um, But they were not finding bacteria or viruses, and they were ruling out infectious causes. And that made them dig a little deeper. And the common thread that they kept finding was exposure to vaping. And a top pulmonologist at Children's Hospital Colorado tells me they've identified a case that first emerged many months ago here that they believe is the same condition. And there are now at least 193 possible cases in 22 states, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And we do have that death in Illinois that we discussed. Ghosh says what was interesting is that doctors were not seeing vaping of just one substance. People seem to be getting sick from multiple substances, something potentially contaminating the vaping devices, including some that people modify at home. Ghosh says all patients reported using vaping liquids or oils that contained either nicotine, marijuana, CBD, synthetic marijuana, or a combination. The hypothesis that the CDC has been considering is that something is potentially contaminating the vaping devices themselves. It could be a solvent, it could be a pesticide, some sort of additive that uh, is causing this type of issue. Quite the mystery. I understand that some of these patients are in the intensive care units. Pretty serious. Yeah, that's right. A lot of healthy young adults in states around the country are ending up hospitalized on ventilators so they have a machine helping them survive. So it's, yeah, very serious. One issue that has come up in your reporting, John, and elsewhere is that 
these devices, these vaping devices, are poorly regulated. Correct. Dr. Ghosh, the state's chief medical officer, says vape products aren't tested the way other products are to ensure there's no contamination or pesticides or heavy metals. I'm not surprised that something is coming up. I'm surprised that it's happening at this scale. I'm concerned that it's coming to Colorado because we have such a high teen vaping rate and young adult vaping rate that I'm worried that many people will get sick. Given all the possible sources for this sickness, I mean, it must make it hard to know exactly how to respond. Yeah, exactly. If the government wanted to try to control this, say ordering a product taken off the market, off the shelves, something like that, where would they start? At this point, health officials haven't pinpointed the exact cause. So what are they doing, public health officials? Well, they're proactively alerting parents and adults and teens who vape to be cautious about the products they're using. They're alerting hospitals, clinics, and doctors to be on the lookout for these types of cases. They're saying patients who vape and have recently experienced a lung disease or may have had one since June 1st of this year. So symptoms, again, like trouble breathing, chest pains, things like that, to check in with their doctor or the local health department. And perhaps to track just how widespread this is, what should parents or, I don't know, a young person who might be sick do with this information, though? Well, again, if someone has these symptoms uh, we described, go to the doctor, get it checked out. And it's key that the patient tell their doctor about their history of vaping, specifically what they've been vaping if they have. Dr. Robin Dieterding from Children's Hospital Colorado urges parents to alert young people about the risks of vaping, since we know vaping is often happening as early as middle school. And I'm talking about talking to their kids even in grade school and middle school. This is not flavored smoke. This is really dangerous things you're inhaling to your lung that's really a delicate filter and could cause something that could be life-threatening now and injure you long-term. And I think people really have to have those conversations because it's so common. I have to think big picture, John Daly, that these cases could have a major impact on the public debate over vaping that's going on right now. Well, I would think so, Ryan. You know, as we've been reporting, the vaping phenomena is relatively new, as is the huge spike in youth use. And we've got state and local governments that are trying to combat this. They're looking at new rules. But the science about the health impacts is very much still emerging. Now we have cases where it looks like vaping is giving some people lung disease today, not years in the future. Mm -hmm. Dr. Ghosh says she thinks these cases will resonate. I think this is a game changer and it might change how we look at these products. It might change how the FDA looks at these products. I can't speak for them, but certainly at a nationwide level changes our view of vaping as a potential vehicle for acute illnesses, not just long-term 20 years from now illnesses. John, thanks so much for your coverage. You bet. Thanks for having me. CPR health reporter John Daly talking about the cases of a mystery lung illness thought to be linked to vaping in Colorado and across the country. Now, we've mentioned Colorado's high youth vaping rate. In fact, half of teenagers in the state admit they've tried vaping. E-cigarettes are such a problem among kids here that the state's quit line now serves 12-year-olds. Well, some counties and cities are passing laws meant to keep kids nicotine-free, but they're getting pushback from the tobacco industry and small business. The mayor of Carbondale near Aspen has taken on this fight. He'd actually like to see the products pulled from shelves. Dan Richardson, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Ryan. 
You recently wrote an opinion piece in the Post Independent out of Glenwood Springs, headlined, Not Buying the Tobacco Industry Lobby on Vaping. Now, when I think of a small town mayor, I think of someone who's concerned about businesses on Main Street and roads. Why does this issue rise to the top for you? Well, I think I'm not just a mayor. I'm a father of two teenagers. So I come at it from two different angles. But also it was alarming to me that the Roaring Fork Valley seemed to have higher use than other places in the state. So I really felt like we had an epidemic that was intensified in the Roaring Fork Valley. And like many issues, it wasn't being addressed at the federal level. So I think local government is... is was the only option. And so I wanted to do what I could to uh, address the issue. Is this something you have seen with your own kids or something that you've seen with your own eyes among youth in Carbondale, that is teen vaping? It certainly is. What does that look like? At first, it looks like a fad that teenagers are just experimenting with the coolest things out there that their peers are doing. But as you dive a little deeper and you spend a little bit more time and the kids do it a little bit longer, it is unequivocally addiction at its early phases. And that's really alarming to me. And what's alarming to me is is I feel that the FDA has just sort of turned a blind eye to it. So while it seems like just a fad, it seems like simple teenage uh, experimentation, I think it's much more serious than that. And yes, I'm seeing that firsthand. All right. So Carbondale has already taken some steps. Uh, For instance, you raised the age limit to 21 for vaping products this time last year, one of the first communities in Colorado to do that. You are considering a flavor ban, a tax increase, some licensing. You wrote that Carbondale is pursuing, quote, aggressive policies to bring down the rate. And to get to the meat of your column, you were contacted by representatives of the tobacco lobby. What stood out from the conference call you had? As you point out, Ryan, I'm a small town mayor, relatively new father of only 16 years. And I didn't consider myself incredibly knowledgeable about vaping. And I was hoping that I was overlooking something, that I was overcomplicating it, that maybe the products aren't as dangerous as I thought. And I was really hoping that they were going to shed some light on some research that they had done, something that would relieve my concerns. And I think how I left that call was realizing that that's not the case. And my fears were probably very justified that there isn't the research, that it is in fact much more likely that kids who vape will eventually turn to smoking. And it was after that call that spurred me to really research the issue to realize that the FDA really isn't providing any sort of security or confidence that these products are safe. I guess I would say that it was, a, it was an alarming call for me. Give me an example of a question you asked and an answer that you received. Well, so one of the business owners asked me if I would agree that they needed to sell the products in order to earn an income that would allow them to then test the products. And I asked them, well, would you let your child drive around in a car that hasn't been safety tested? And there was no response to that question. In other words, their argument is 
the more that we sell of these, the more money the industry will have to engage in its own testing? That's correct. And that's why I'm asking that my preference would be for the FDA to do the testing. CPR, I want to say, has made numerous requests over many months to speak with representatives from Juul, that's the e-cigarette market leader, and they've declined. The company supports raising the national minimum age for all tobacco and vape products to 21. As we said, it's 21 now in your community, Carbondale. But the industry has been strongly opposed to banning flavors and to tax increases. So speaking with Jewel was a no-go. Then we thought, well, let's get you on the line with the lobbyists who rang you up and sort of recreate that conversation, but no dice there. They did, however, refer us to Amanda Wheeler, who had been on that call. She owns a couple of vaping stores in Colorado Springs, and she's the vice president of the Rocky Mountain Smoke-Free Alliance. Well, my first question to the mayor would be, does he intend on banning all flavored alcohol due to the very high rates of teen binge drinking that we still see to this day? I mean, we see astronomical rates of binge drinking, and yet I don't see a crusade of people out there trying to ban flavored alcohol. Uh, Heck, Mayor, there's whipped cream flavored vodka now. Uh, Help me understand how you might distinguish alcohol from, say, flavors in vaping. I know for certain those products have been on the market longer than e-cigarettes, so we at least have more data. Secondly, my experience and my research tells me that nicotine is much more addictive and contributes to long-term addiction than other substances do. And thirdly, as a parent, I know, or at least I have more confidence if my child has been drinking alcohol. To me, the e-cigarette epidemic can just fly under the radar screen. And so to me, it's riskier, it's more dangerous for kids and for parents to not understand the, the breadth of the problem. How close do you think Carbondale is to a flavor ban? Uh, I'd say less than a week away from making that decision. I, I think our board is very supportive of it. Um, and obviously it will take time before it officially becomes law, but I don't see many hurdles. I realize I don't know the intricacies of Carbondale's government. Do you as mayor have a vote in that? Are you a voting member of council? I am. You are. All right. Amanda Wheeler points to research, uh, including a study from the New England Journal of Medicine this year, that shows e-cigarettes are nearly twice as effective as conventional nicotine replacement products like patches and gum for quitting smoking. So one concern here, of course, is that young people start vaping and move on to tobacco. But... Uh, We often hear about vape products' ability to help those who are addicted to traditional cigarettes wean off of them. This is a much disputed topic. I want to say that on its website, the American Lung Association says the FDA has not found any e-cigarette to be safe and effective in helping smokers quit. Uh, Amanda Wheeler told our health reporter John Daly that e-cigarettes, though, had helped her quit smoking regular cigarettes. I've seen it in my store with thousands of customers. I've seen these products help people to quit. I've seen people use vaping to get off of cigarettes. They vape for a time. They step down their nicotine level, and eventually they stop vaping, and then they're living a nicotine-free life. We're not in the realm of conjecture. We know for a fact that these products help adults. His question is, is that more important than all the kids that are getting hooked? I think they're both important. I think the fact that 1,300 adults die from smoking a day 
is as important as youth using the products. I think they're both critically important issues. And I think we need to do things that address both of those issues. Mayor, what do you say? Well, I think on the surface, I certainly haven't seen any data that said e-cigarettes eventually lead to a completely nicotine-free life. But let's take that at face value and say that it does. That's great. I look to the guidance of the FDA who said, we will delay research and approval on this product, assuming you take steps to keep it out of the hands of kids. And that's clearly not happening. Kids are getting this. So I think it's very fair and reasonable for local governments to say, we are going to pull out all the stops. We are going to take aggressive measures to prevent youth from using these products. If you're 21, you can buy these products. Uh, If you're 21, you can even go to a different town and buy flavored products. But we are going to do whatever we can to stop the epidemic that e-cigarettes has created. And I don't think that those steps prevent adults from using e-cigarettes from quitting smoking. But you you have the head of Juul saying that he would support a nationwide age limit of 21. What about that doesn't spell to you that they're concerned about kid use? Uh, It's just not enough. That It sounds good that that's going to prevent youth use, but it just simply isn't. I mean, we know that youth can get a a hold of alcohol or e-cigarettes or cigarettes, whatever, even though they're underage. So I think given the fact that the FDA is not regulating and researching this product adequately, we have to go above and beyond. And I'm sorry that could impact the vaping industry, but in my opinion, it's what's necessary to curb this epidemic. Is the subtext of what you're saying that you think the vaping industry is, like their motive is to get young people hooked so that they have future customers? Like, can I, can we just call it out if that's what you think? I, I think that is certainly possible. I certainly don't want to question others' motives, but I think by creating such youthful flavor names, it's hard for me to think that that wasn't part of their thinking. Names like what? Uh, Tutti Frutti. Um, I can't think of others at the moment, but... Uh, let me, I'm just going to Google these. I realize I haven't looked at them before. Uh, okay. Tutti Frutti. Lava Flow. Candy Crush. E-Juice. Blue Raz. Lemonade. There you go. Thanks for your time, Mayor. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ryan. Carbondale Mayor Dan Richardson, his community is considering a vaping flavor ban now. We reached out to the FDA, which Richardson accused of being lax. They pointed us to a statement from the acting commissioner in July. It says the FDA, quote, stands ready to accelerate the review of e-cigarettes and other new tobacco products. We will continue to take vigorous enforcement actions aimed at ensuring e-cigarettes and other tobacco products aren't being marketed to or sold to kids. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A district attorney on the Eastern Plains is under investigation for allegedly using her position to obtain opioids. The governor has asked Colorado's attorney general to step in as special prosecutor. CPR's justice reporter Allison Sherry broke this story Friday. 
Allison, what do you know about these allegations against District Attorney Brittany Luton? So I've learned through my reporting that this started with employees in Luton's DA office who had concerns about some of their boss's behavior. It was investigated then by local law enforcement in cooperation with the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, and then it just kind of transpired from there. But to be clear, there are no charges filed at this point. These are just allegations. Correct. No charges have been filed. It's a little complicated, right, because the alleged crimes took place in the area where Luton is in charge of prosecuting. So that's why the governor has gotten involved. He was presented with some evidence and asked the attorney general to be the special prosecutor on the case. Governor Polis issued that executive order on August 15th, and it was pretty strongly worded. It said the governor is aware of allegations of misconduct and potential criminal activity and is now asking uh, Phil Weiser to take over. Who is Brittany Luton? She's a fairly young district attorney. She started in the office as an intern in 2005, so she's been there for a long time. She's a Republican. She's won her seat in two elections handily by voters. Her judicial district's composed of a handful of counties in the northeastern part of the state. Some of the bigger towns include Sterling and Fort Morgan. Uh, She's been outspoken about the need for more resources since felony filings in her office have increased, as they have across the state. And she's also currently amid a major homicide trial with Scott Kimball, who you probably know is a serial killer serving time in Sterling, who last year threatened to escape from prison and kill more people. So she's in the middle of all of that right now. Does Luton have any response to the allegations against her? She's hired an attorney, Stan Garnett, who you probably remember a former Boulder County District Attorney. He's now working as a defense lawyer. Uh, Garnett speaking on her behalf. He says she has to continue her constitutional obligation to run the DA's office. He also said Brittany is proud of what she's accomplished in her nearly seven years as district attorney, and she's been elected twice by overwhelming margins, and she's innocent of any suggestion of wrongdoing. What happens next, Allison? Well, I think we sort of wait for uh, Weiser's office um, on what they're going to decide to do, whether they do file charges. Uh, so there's no real time frame from Weiser. And I should note that it's fairly hard to remove an elected DA. It, it requires a recall uh, from voters or the state legislature can impeach her. I gather that it depends on what the attorney general decides, uh, whether we learn more about exactly what the accusations are around opioids? Correct. What we know uh, from our sources is that she was improperly obtaining opioids by using her position as prosecutor. Now, we don't know at this point what she was doing with those opioids. So I think we will know a lot more when and if charging documents are filed and we see you know, what criminal allegations are levied against her. Now, I do want to say she's still innocent until proven guilty, right? I mean, even though some documents might be filed uh, with criminal charges, it doesn't mean that she necessarily did it. Thanks, Allison. Thank you, Ryan. CPR's justice reporter Allison Sherry on an investigation into District Attorney Brittany Luton in northeastern Colorado. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There's a gun safety measure with widespread support, and that's safe gun storage. A first-of-its-kind map out today shows where you can store a firearm in Colorado if you don't want it in your home. The Colorado Firearm Safety Coalition created the map. That coalition is led by Dr. Emmy Betts, emergency physician at CU. 
Dr. Betts, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. Run through some of the reasons that people might want to store a gun off-site, temporarily or long-term. Well, this project initially started because we know that when folks are are at risk of suicide, um, it can be a good idea to either lock up the gun or ideally move it outside of the home until the person's feeling better. Um, But there are other reasons, too. Let's say the grandkids are coming to visit or you're going on an extended trip. Um, You know, various reasons why someone might want to temporarily and voluntarily move a firearm out of their house. Temporarily and voluntarily. I suppose, to a certain extent, you are distinguishing this from Colorado's soon-to-be-enacted red-flag gun law in which guns are removed against someone's will. Exactly. So in our minds, this is way upstream from that. This is when a gun owner and his or her family, for whatever reason, are interested in storing some guns out of the home. And what we realized was that there wasn't really an easy way to find stores nearby that might be willing to do so, either stores or law enforcement agencies. Yeah, that's what's interesting to me. This is gun shops, it's pawn shops, but also police departments from Canyon City to Dillon to Evans... Uh, how does off-site gun storage generally work? It varies by site, and, and we put phone numbers on the map specifically because we recommend people always call ahead to find out the details. Don't just show up with a bunch of guns in your car. Okay. Um, all of the places on the map were willing to be listed and currently offer storage. You know, at some, it's like a safe deposit box where you each keep a key. Um, others, it's a, more of a true kind of transfer of the firearm. But um, And there's a cost involved at some of them that varies. And so we didn't list all of that on the map. Again, uh, just recommend that people call before they go. I didn't realize that law enforcement even provided this service. And not all police departments do offer storage, in large part because they may not have the space to do so and to do so securely. Um, Many of them will be free. In some cases, there might be a charge associated with a background check that you would probably need to have run when you go to get your weapon back. So when you go back to the police, they may rerun a background check to make sure that you're an authorized owner. Now, you say that you had come at this originally as someone who wants to prevent suicides. Is there evidence that this kind of storage makes a difference? Absolutely. We know that Having a firearm in the home increases the risk of death by suicide by about threefold. That's not because having a gun makes you suicidal. It just means when you're in that low moment, if you reach for a firearm, the likelihood of death is much higher. And so we, there's lots of evidence that putting time and space between people and a weapon when they're at risk of suicide um, can save lives. In some cases, that could be locking a gun securely at home, but we also know that getting it out of the house is a great way to put that time and space between a person and a weapon. And the thought is that many folks will want to do this with their friends and family voluntarily with the stores, say, in their neighborhood, a a trusted location. Um, And if we can help that be a little bit easier, that's really the intent of this project. Who's to say that the store where you're dropping off the gun is trustworthy? We can't say that all of the stores on this map are trustworthy. You know, you certainly would want to check with any store you're going to that you feel like they are a trustworthy business. These are all brick and mortar kind of places that have a a facility. But the thought is that for many people, they may choose a gun store or range over, say, law enforcement if they want to move their weapons out of the house. Now, if this decision is made with my family, do they also have to be there for me to recoup it? No, they wouldn't need to be. I mean, it it would usually be the lawful owner of the weapon who would 
probably turn it in and also go to pick it up. And importantly, you wouldn't have to say why. Most often, is it that people do this of their own volition? Or like, are there family members taking a person's gun and running it to storage? Like, I'm just curious how this most often manifests. I I wish I could tell you that. We don't really have data on how it has worked in the past. Uh, I hope we can study that. Maybe a national organization, someone with more scope might want to take this kind of concept and and scale it up, uh, because I think it would probably be helpful in other states as well. Hmm. What were the conversations like with uh, gun shops, for instance, in including them in this map? Did they see it as a boon to business, a public health benefit? I think it really varied. I think many are very eager to do what they can in terms of providing a service to customers. I think some are understandably concerned about the context of suicide risk. They have very reasonable questions about, you know, what is their liability if they give the gun back? Um, How do they know when the person is safe to have it back? I think those are all very fair questions that I hope we can address through policy clarification or or even just guidance. I mean, this is fascinating. So, you know, if, if someone who is, say, suicidal drops their gun off, they recover the gun, and then they complete suicide. Do, what is the answer to whether the store is responsible? And to my knowledge, there there haven't been any cases where a store has been prosecuted for that. I would think that it would be the same as if they sold a gun to someone who, for the first time, who used it to either kill themselves or to commit a crime. But I think it's a really good question. And and law enforcement agencies often have the same question. How do we know if it's okay to give it back? Um, and so I think this is an area that we need to help provide some of that guidance. Look, it's impossible to know 100% if the person is okay because periods of risk, it's, it's sometimes like a roller coaster. They go up and down. And But I think it's the questions that the gun shops and the law enforcement agencies are asking about this are fair. You know, with El Paso and Dayton and Gilroy on people's minds, Is this a way to prevent mass shootings? Any evidence? So I think this could be useful in settings when family or friends are concerned about someone and they maybe convince them to lock up some weapons. Again, if we come back to what's more common, it's suicide in our state. It's 78% of firearm deaths are suicide. So my sense is that that's where this is going to have the biggest impact, particularly for our state. Dr. Betts, thanks so much. Absolutely. Thank you. Dr. Emmy Betts leads the Colorado Firearm Safety Coalition, which has made a statewide map of places you can store a firearm if you don't want it in your home. There's a link at CPR.org. For the first time, there was a presidential forum focused entirely on the concerns of Indian country. Last week, 11 presidential candidates, so 10 Democrats and one independent, took part in the Frank Lemire Native American Presidential Forum in Sioux City, Iowa. Over two days, candidates answered questions from tribal members, including youth, about sovereignty, safety, health, and education for indigenous people. We were interested in how these issues resonate in Colorado. Carla Fredericks is the director of the American Indian Law Program at CU Boulder, and she joins my colleague Avery Lill. Carla, before we get into the issues, why was this forum so significant? The forum was significant um, mostly because in This national election where there are so many significant issues, it was an opportunity for Native American issues to really 
rise to the surface in the consciousness of the different campaigns. Um, Native American people don't really have a visibility um, like the general population does in situations like these. Um, but we are heavily impacted um, by the decisions of uh, politicians and the executive branch. So a very important event, um, very well attended by the candidates, which I think is also very significant. A nonprofit called Four Directions spearheaded this forum, and their main initiative is to promote voter equality in Indian country. What does inequality at the ballot box look like for Native Americans? Um, well, there are many different issues that affect Native Americans in exercising the right to vote. Um, we're coming up on a very significant anniversary of the 19th Amendment, um, which enfranchised um, the female vote. And um, I have been looking at uh, the history around that and realized that Native Americans actually didn't have the right to vote until 1924, which was after the passage of the 19th Amendment. Hmm. Um, and I think that there's a long history um, in this country of uh, lack of enfranchisement of Native Americans. And uh, that continues today in um, some significant ways with respect to actually exercising the right to vote. Um, last election cycle, um, during the midterms, uh, the American Indian Law Clinic was able to work in partnership with Four Directions and Native American Rights Fund to conduct poll watching activities on reservations throughout North Dakota um, because North Dakota had attempted to institute a very restrictive voter identification law where um, any person coming to the ballot box would be required to present proof of physical address to be able to vote. And Native American people in North Dakota who live on reservations, many of them live in rural communities that actually don't have a residential street address, a fact that was known by the legislature in passing um, this requirement. So uh, there was grave concern about the possibility of disenfranchisement on election day um, there, and that's just one example. And I should mention this is happening uh, throughout Indian country, and it's also happening throughout America um, in other communities as well. And are we seeing those sorts of issues in Colorado? Um, the two tribes in Colorado, the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe and the Southern Ute Tribe, have been really proactive in terms of ensuring that their membership um, is able to exercise their right to vote. Um, the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe uh, had a polling location closed, the only polling location on their reservation um, in the last election cycle. And they instituted um, a really fulsome strategy to ensure that their members knew where to vote, could get to the polling location, um, and to create some clarity where, frankly, um, that clarity uh, was otherwise absent. So what we saw um, very significantly is the tribe's um, efforts, both in North Dakota, elsewhere, here in Colorado, when these issues pop up, the tribe's efforts are really critically important um, to protect their members' constitutional rights. Let's talk about some of the other issues that came up at the forum. One of the first questions that was raised was about missing and murdered Indigenous women. Here's Colleen Akwak of the Native Organizers Alliance addressing presidential candidate Marianne Williamson. 
According to the United States Department of Justice, American Indian women are 10 times more likely, likely to be murdered than the national average. Four in five American Indian women will experience violence, violence in their lifetimes. And we see that all over our country. I live in Seattle, where I support American Indian Alaska Native people who are experiencing homelessness. And we see these high rates of sexual violence with our folks who are homeless. We know that our um, Native community are more likely to be homeless than anyone else in our whole country. In Anchorage, Alaska, 60% of the homeless population are Native. In Seattle, 10%. Minneapolis, it's 22 times more likely to be homeless. And the missing, murdered, and Indigenous woman is completely connected there because we know that that lack of stability of home and housing um, reverberates through that entire system. And so I just wonder what your response is to, I, I combine women and missing, murdered, Indigenous women with housing and stability and just some of your thoughts on that. <clears throat> How do you think that candidates did addressing these concerns about safety and infrastructure? Um, I was really impressed um, by how well prepared the candidates were um, to think about these really complex issues. Um, Colleen's comments really go to the contemporary statistics, um, and there are definitely indicators um, around poverty and um, lack of social opportunity, economic opportunity that feed into this very complex problem. But um, a lot of the, the cause of this problem is that tribes have actually been unable to prosecute crimes on their own reservations um, due to a case called Oliphant versus Suquamish. And some of the candidates um, took that issue head on and talked about um, the need to overturn Oliphant, which um, has been the subject of some legislative activity, but still has not um, sufficiently been addressed. And so, you know, it, Native American people, um, people who live on Indian reservations, the impact of what happens in the political and legal sphere is felt very immediately um, in these communities. And uh, I, I, I think, again, that's why a forum like this is really important. And I was just really pleased at how seriously these issues were being considered by the candidates that, that appeared at the forum. And I want to take this again to Colorado. Do we see problems with safety and infrastructure facing Native Americans here? Like you said, we have the Ute Mountain Ute Reservation and the Southern Ute Reservations, both in southwestern Colorado. And then we also have a pretty large urban Indian population in Denver. Sure. I mean, Colorado has um, a kind of a different profile than other places um, in Indian country, but... Colorado is Indian country. Um, there are over 40 tribes that had historical connections here um, in, in pre-colonial times. And uh, more contemporary history um, here is that Denver was a relocation city um, in the 1960s and 70s, um, to, which really created our urban Indian population here. I think that Indian people here in Colorado are um, somewhat better off than in other places, but there are still challenges that need to be addressed. Um, one of the things that we see a lot um, in the American Indian Law Clinic and the program is um, a grave concern over the future of the Indian Child Welfare Act, um, which is has a huge impact on Native American families here in Colorado. And so while um, some of the indicators that uh, Colleen mentioned in the quote that you 
just ran are not present in the same way in Colorado. The concerns about um, the future of our youth and um, ensuring the safety of Indian people are still critically important. Going back to the forum, tribal sovereignty was also a significant issue. Candidate Amy Klobuchar was among those who pledged to strengthen it. And I can promise you, as your president, I will respect sovereignty and I will strongly believe in government-to-government negotiations and consultation. That that is key. Why is this issue so important and how did the candidates do discussing it? Um, Well, this is really the core of the ability of Native American people to have self-determination is this concept of tribal sovereignty. You have to remember that um, in the colonial era, the United States had um, treaties with the Indian tribes, um, and it's reflected in our Constitution that um, trade and intercourse with Indian tribes was a key aspect of our early history in this country. Um, And tribes were treated as separate nations um, during that time and for those purposes. And those rights are um, continuing today through the tribes treaties that remain in full force. Um, uh, Senator Klobuchar's um, comments were really interesting because of course she comes from a state Uh, the state of Minnesota, where um, there are many Indian tribes who have an active relationship um, with the state government. And I think her experience there um, really came through in um, representing to the forum how important that issue of tribal sovereignty is. Um, But it also requires um, some specifics. Um, Representing that tribal sovereignty is important is a critical first step. But what does that look like in practice? And some candidates had more concrete proposals. Others, um, I think, are still working toward um, developing that understanding. And so it'll be interesting to see after this forum what type of policies the candidates come up with in response to some of the questions raised. Thank you, Carla. Appreciate you being here. Thank you for having me on the program. That's Carla Fredericks. She directs the American Indian Law Program at CU Boulder. She's a member of the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara Nation of North Dakota. Still to come, are builders in Metro Denver building homes most people can actually afford? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado. It's 2019. Weed is legal. It's not that unusual to see cannabis yoga classes, guided cannabis meditations, even cannabis churches. Now, using cannabis to meditate or worship is not a new thing. Rastafarians have been using it for almost 100 years. But in this new world of legalization, what changes when we're talking about weed and religion? Find out on the latest episode of CPR's new podcast, On Something, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A Colorado Wonders question now that was prompted by a Colorado Wonders answer. So last week, CPR's business reporter Ben Marcus looked into who can actually afford to buy a home in Metro Denver. You know, there are people who are just paying cash for houses. Well, another listener wondered what homes are being built that cost less than the metro average, which is over half a million dollars? In other words, how many new homes are at least somewhat affordable? And Ben is back to answer that. Hi again, Ben. Thanks for having me again. I think 
the questions about housing are just endless. Um, I understand that this particular question is actually tied into tax assessments. So the question came in from Trisha Powell. She's in Grand Junction. She got her tax assessment in the mail and the value of her home had risen 50%. So she was actually wondering, could she even afford her own home that she lives in? And so she wanted to know more about the mix of new housing that's somewhat affordable. What I have heard numerous times is builders prefer to construct something that's going to sell for a higher price because there's a bigger profit margin there for them. Is that true? Are they building more expensive homes for bigger profits? I mean, kind of. These are businesses, so they do have to make a profit. They are building bigger, higher cost homes. The data shows us that. Coming out of the recession, that's what was selling in Denver and across the country. Um, The people who could secure loans coming out of the Great Recession, the Great Recession was a housing crisis. So they tightened loan standards after the recession. That means the people who could qualify were the people who had the best credit. They weren't first-time buyers. They were move-up buyers. Um, It's also true that there are higher prices for land, municipal fees. Uh, There's a labor crisis in construction. So uh, it just costs a lot more to build a home. And that's why to turn a profit, builders are building bigger, more expensive homes. So builders are putting up more expensive homes, but uh, your reporting shows that's changing, right? It's actually, yeah, the the builders have come to the realization that there is a whole generation of people, mostly in their 30s, who can't afford these homes, according to John Covert with Metro Study. So what's happening now is the builders are really pivoting hard. Um, And what I mean by that is if you look at the finished square footage of all the new construction that's taken place, it's dropping over the last two years pretty aggressively. So shrinking square footage, this is how big your your home is on the inside. It's fallen 12% in the last two years. Now, Metro Study, they go out and do a a lot-by-lot census to see how big homes are all across the metro area. And not only is the actual size of the physical home shrinking, but the lot it sits on is also shrinking dramatically in some cases. So smaller means more affordable. Okay. Uh, Denser, lower prices perhaps, but are there trade-offs? Yeah, so a lot of these new developments, these master plan communities are actually closer to Denver International Airport than they are downtown Denver. So you're going to have to drive. Um, They have, of course, if you want a cheaper home, fewer high-end finishes. Uh, Denver has a lot of basements. Basements cost money. They cost a lot of money, even though people do desire them in this market. Um, So fewer basements. Um, But basically... This data shows there is some hope for first-time homebuyers that builders are starting to bend the curve in terms of the size of housing. I'm not sure I'd want to be out on the plains without a basement. Yeah, that's a good point. That's interesting. There's a security concern maybe there when it comes to tornadoes. Tornadoes. Okay. Well, we'll keep tracking this. And, you know, who knows? Even this segment may yield more questions. Thanks, Ben Marcus. Thank you. He is CPR's business reporter, talking about the number of homes in Metro Denver that are priced below the average and what's being done to build more affordable homes. We met cyclist Erica Clevenger last week. She's a pro in Golden on Team Show Air 2020, and she competed in the Colorado Classic over the weekend. So how did she do in that 220-mile race? I did really well. I um, Again, it's a team sport, so uh, Chloe was our team leader, and it's essentially my job and everyone on my team's job to protect and defend her lead 
um, which we did with Flying Colors. We won every stage and um, won the overall at the race. So, yeah, it was an amazing week. Chloe, by the way, is Chloe Digert owen The Colorado Classic was Clevenger's last race of the season, so she'll continue her Ph.D. program now at the Colorado School of Mines. Finally today, new music that mixes rock and roll with Latin soul. The Denver psych rock band Is Cali released their fifth studio album earlier this year. They stopped by our performance studio to play a few songs. Here's the title track from the new album, Casa de Papel. from Denver's own Is Cali. You can see video of their performance studio session at CPR.org. And to hear more Latin music that's new and local, tune in to Indy 1023 for Indy Especial, Wednesday nights at 9. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.